Well, good day. I'm Mark Sylvester, ambassador of 805 Connect and your host for this 805 Conversation, where we talk to fascinating people you'll want to know better. Our show is sponsored by California Lutheran University School of Management and Tolman and Weicker Insurance Services. Thanks to them both for their support and encouragement. Thanks to our podcasting partner, Pullstring Press, for this great studio, and to Patrick, my co-host. Hey, Patrick. Hey, Mark. It's only great when there's great content coming from it, so thank you for that. Boy, I love it. And we've got another good one in store for us right now, Jim Cathcart, coming up from the southern part of the 805. Jim, how are you? I'm wonderful. Happy to be here. I love Santa Barbara. Jim, this is not your first time in front of a microphone, I'm guessing. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so you you were—how many— books have you written? I, I stopped 18, counting. 18, but only 17 of them have been published so far. Mm. The 18th one is in heavy Still edit. in your head? No, it's edit, being edited. Oh, nice. Yep. You love writing. Oh, love it. Totally. What do you like most, best about writing? Um, I like the the stimulus. I lo- It's kind of like singing, you know, when, when I'm playing a, a song. Well. Yeah, yeah, I play yeah, guitar yeah. and sing. And um, the writing is like that for me. It's something... It, it, Sometimes I just feel the need to um, create, and so I'll take a concept and just start writing about it, and that it's just enjoyable for me. It's like have you um, written your whole life? Um, yeah, yeah. When I was a little kid, I enjoyed writing. When I was in school, doing essays always came easily for me. Doing sentence construction, not so much, <laughs> but <laughs> you know, it's just that's that's a natural pleasure for me. Uh, about two months ago, I had my 45th high school reunion, and I went specifically because my creative writing teacher was invited. Outstanding. And I met her, and I said, you have no idea. You were the one teacher who had the most impact on my life, teaching me how to write, how to think about writing, how to integrate senses in Every writing. teacher dreams for that moment. Yeah. I would think so, yeah. right? Um, yeah. I, I, I just love that. And that's... Um, did you have a teacher like that, or did you just naturally start Ms. writing? Ms. Waters, in, uh, in grammar school, I had a lot of good teachers. Ms. Waters was my fourth-grade teacher. Uh, Ms. Susky was my third-grade teacher. Ms. Wage was my fifth-grade teacher. Ms. C Clark teachers. was my sixth-grade. You know, teachers. I, yeah, I mean, these are all teachers who genuinely cared about stimulating the learning in me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember uh, Ms. Clark, who was my sixth-grade teacher, noticed that I had a, a, a real affinity for drawing, you know, oh, like cartoons yeah, and sketches sure. and things like that. And so when I would get my lessons done earlier than the other kids in the class, she would let me and my friend Bobby Moon, who had an equal uh, rapid learning bent, uh, get a big poster and just write, you know, mm. just not write, uh, but sketch. Mm. And we'd do these big elaborate tapestries of, oh, wow. of Kid stuff. Yeah. You know? Now, you um, you came on my radar a couple of, kind of at the same time, but from two avenues. Mm-hmm. You and another guest on the podcast, David Knorr, mm-hmm. co-wrote a book. Yes, we did. And then you're also um, very involved with California Lutheran University School of Management yep. and Hub 101 and all of that. You're on their advisory board. Yeah, I was uh, when Hub 101 was first formed, 
when the when we were looking for spaces, you know, where to put it. Right. Um, I was with Evan Forster, who was the guy that initially championed that project, and the, and we called it Huddle Campus. And then uh, Evan moved out in California. Lutheran took over the management of that totally. And I've stayed involved because I've been on the Dean's Advisory Council for more than a decade now. I I love um, citizens who get involved with schools because they they can't get enough of outside people like us to come and help. Right. And just (laughs) just give them a, a dose of like. The, re- the reality of what we're doing, especially in a business school. What's your favorite part of that role? I like being part of the creation. I like, uh, th- that goes back to kind of the uh, impulse that I like about writing or about singing, performing. You know, I like creating new things. I like to get a seed of an idea mm. and turn it into a forest. So, so that sounds very much l- like you're an entrepreneur. I would think that kind of goes. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you you write and you consult, um, and you've uh, the picture you sent me. So when when people see this episode, the picture is of you in front of a room of uh, Chinese. Oh yeah, people. in Taiwan, I'm yeah. standing up with my arms yeah, spread yeah, yeah. and a standing ovation behind me of several hundred R- people. Yeah. Right. That was in June. So have you? Um, and you have this, your expertise goes, we'll, we'll get into that, and lots of things related to business. But have you run businesses as well? I have, yeah. So tell I us started, about that. Well, I started it as, it, it's always been an entrepreneur type of a scenario. Uh, the, I had worked in everything. I'd worked in banks and insurance companies and other things and, and didn't enjoy any of those particularly. And then I realized that there was such a thing as the field of personal development, applied behavioral science. And so I got involved back in the 1970s in selling Earl Nightingale's motivational training. And I was doing that door-to-door under the business name Human Resources of Arkansas. Human Resources was a new term at the time because personnel departments were still personnel departments. And... um, Training was virtually unknown in businesses. They did, you know, right. they said we hire right. well. We don't need to train, right. which was not true. But that's what everybody said. And so I was selling these training programs door to door to businesses on, in, on audio cassettes in yep. Little Rock, Arkansas. Wow. Yeah, that was something. But but then I went from there to heading up a, um, a division of the uh, Urban Renewal Agency in Little Rock, um, Little Rock Housing Authority. I started so out as a, a little clerk. public service. Thing? Yeah, started out as a clerk there, and then moved up through the ranks, and then and then left there and went to work for a political campaign. Really? It, uh, it was Arkansas Credit Requirements Committee. We were trying to pass a constitutional or constitutional amendment. We were trying to pass an amendment in the state of Arkansas to remove the interest rate ceiling so that all the lending companies would stop leaving the state because they had a 10% maximum Mm. interest um, in Arkansas at the time. And it was hurting the economy because interest rates nationwide had gone up so high. And uh, then I left that and went to work for the United States JCs, the Junior Chamber of Commerce, at their national headquarters in charge of their leadership training programs back when they were 350,000 members when JCs were huge. What is it about training you love so much? I just love helping people discover things. 
it's so much fun to to see someone else have that aha moment. We had Russell Bishop. Have you run into Russell Bishop I in don't your know. travels? I, I don't get a picture when I think of his name. He was uh, one of the guys in the early part of the human potential movement. We had him on the show uh, just a little while back. And he calls it um, the awakening. Mm-hmm. And he said it's like I'm not teaching you something. I'm just awakening you to that thing you that's already there yeah. for you. And yeah. so what you just said reminded me of that. It's like when you're watching them go, Bing, and you're like, oh, precisely. Yes, yeah. That's that's a right? glorious moment. I, I, that's like when the teacher comes to you and says, or, or when you come to the teacher and say, you know, you're the one that made the difference for me. Right. Yeah. Right. I, I teach I teach college periodically, and and one of the things that we we've all, we've over and over and over again had to learn is that uh, you can't tell a student what they need to know. You can help them understand what they need to know. Yeah. You can lead them towards things, but but you can't say to them, you, you need to know this, and then they know it. That's not how it works. That that discovering, leading them towards discovering something, that's just watching them discover. That's a that's a fantastic way to put it. Like, yeah. yeah, understanding. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Well, when I talk about learning, I, I tell people, think of your mind like your desk and your file cabinet. Okay. Back in your mind, you know lots of things. You've been exposed to millions of pixels of things throughout sure. your life. And they're in that file cabinet somewhere. They're not necessarily organized into a file where you could access them. Mm. You know, it's just like random storage, which is useless. It may be there, but it could be an eternity before you discover it. So when I'm preparing for anything, what I want to do is get the files out of the filing cabinet and onto the desktop. Meaning out of the back of my right, mind right. onto the front of my mind. And the way I do that, for example, for a speaking engagement, because that's my primary function in life is, is working as a professional speaker and author. Um, I'll review the client materials that I already know, the things that I've read weeks before when I was preparing. So these are your, t- let's get your three tips for preparing. Yeah. First Re- one first is. First tip is review what you already know, oh. even though you don't feel the need to do it. Okay. So when I'm, let's say I'm traveling from here to Austin, Texas to give a speech. I'll get out my file, yep. and I'll reread every bit of correspondence I had with the client. Hmm. I'll reread their brochure. I'll look at the photographs and the attributions under the photographs, things I don't necessarily need to know. Mm-hmm. And I'll okay. get every bit of it into the front of my mind so right. it's, it's fresh and ready. And then I'll go over my presentation. You know, so that's I, number I, two. That's number yeah. one is number two is... Is go over the presentation the night before. As I'm getting ready to go to sleep, I'll look at it one last time. Next morning, I have breakfast alone almost every morning. Mm. And I sit there and I review one more time the key material that I need to. And that way, when I'm introduced to speak, I'm loaded for bear. Right. I don't need notes necessarily. It's nice to have them, but I don't necessarily look at them. And the main thing I want to do in front of an audience is engage their mind. Mm -hmm. I don't want to give a presentation. Mm. I want to have a conversation, a dialogue with them, even if they're actually silent physically. You know, I want the interactivity in their eyes and their body movement and their facial expressions. So let's stay on that for a minute because we're we're getting ready for a big TEDx and and my wife is a speaker coach. So I'm living in that world all the time and yep. by the way I'm celebrating the 755,000th view 
of my TEDx video yeah. this week. It's been that out is, for that two is years. That is so awesome. Yeah, isn't that amazing? Congratulations. Thank you. That puts it in the top 1% of all TEDx videos in the world. Congratulations. Thank you. That is not easy to do. Uh, well, I'll actually, what's the title of it? The title of it is How to Believe in Yourself. And I will put a note in the show notes, folks. Thank so you. there's a, a link uh, for that. The, the question I have is, uh, so around preparation rehearsal, mm -hmm. we talked about that. When you're engaged with an audience that can't talk back, but they are communicating back, right. what are the things you're looking for? Well, I want to see their eyes when I'm telling a story, and I want to see the top of their heads when I'm making a point. <laughs> so I want them looking down at their paper and writing notes when I'm making a key point, and I want them totally connected with me when I'm telling them a story. And so, listener, what you can't see right now is he's looking at the top of my head because I'm, <laughs> I'm writing all that. that I'm and what a handsome top of the head. All, all that a real down. connoisseur of the yeah. top of the head. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, we'll thank my hairdresser for that. Um, so there's um, – stay on that a little bit in that a lot of people are very afraid of public speaking. It's one yeah. of the big fears, right? You know, I think And snakes. I wonder if it's as big as people say it is. You know, the, the, the uh, Book of Lists is famous for putting it as the number one public fear. Um, but in my experience, it's not nearly as high up there as things like spiders and, and uh, yeah, spiders fire and snakes. And, and, yeah, 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 those are death. and So they will tell you, um, the, these motivational guys will yeah. say, um, you know, imagine them with their, in their underwear. Oh, They're just what all an those absurd things. I mean, <laughs> no, no, that's where I want to say. It, I, mean, it, I don't want to go there, but what an awful thought. Think of the fruits of that as you envision your audience naked. <laughs> yeah, no, ex exactly. And I don't know where that came from. But if Somebody you were, in the 1950s. Is that? Yeah. Oh, there you go. That's what it was. So what, it, what would be your counsel to that someone who, because the people who listen to this show, they're, you know, they're entrepreneurs, they're leaders, yep. they're growing, they're, you know, they, they the look to like the us. show. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And they're, they want to get a tip or trick. Well, here's the big one. People say, do you ever get nervous, Jim, when you're giving a speech? And I say, yes, if. I don't know why this audience should care mm. about what I've brought them this day. In other words, what I'm about to tell them. If I don't understand why they should care about that, then I'm just making sounds in front of them and eating up their time. Hmm. What a waste mm. and, and what an intrusion. So my number one goal with every presentation yep. is to get clear in my own mind and heart why they should care about what I have to, to reveal to them today. And once I'm clear on that, which requires a lot of understanding of them I was first, just going to say, yeah. yeah. Uh, once I'm clear on that, I am bulletproof. When I mean, the, the place could catch on fire. Uh, someone in the audience could stand up and call me names. Uh, we could have any of a thousand types of emergencies, which I've encountered most of over my 3,000 speeches around the last 40 years. Um, as long as I'm clear how I'm going to benefit them, then I'm ready to go. Do you actually tell them that? Yeah. At the, on kind occasion, of the, I Kind do. of at yeah. the head of it is like, this is why you should care in case because someone didn't get the memo. <laughs> <laughs> I have, it, 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 it's interesting. I start different speeches in different ways. 
and uh, everyone should, based on their, their goal and, and the setting they're in. Like sometimes I'll walk out and I'll say, how many of you have ever gone out to buy something, found what you wanted at a decent price, and then refused to buy it because you just didn't like the way the person was selling it? And then I raised yeah, my hand yeah. to indicate they should raise theirs, and hands go up all over the room. And I said, well, let's talk about that. And so I talk about what's wrong when the product's okay, the price is okay, but you don't like the way the person's selling it. What's going on there? And so I talk about that mindset, and we drill down into it and then talk about solutions. One time I was speaking in Los Angeles at a big formal theatrical kind of a gathering, and I walked out to the spotlight on the center of the stage. I looked at the audience without smiling and greeting them. I said, the thought manifests as the word. The word manifests as the deed. Deeds form into habit, and habit hardens into character. Mm. So watch your thoughts mm. with care. Mm, 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 mm. And then I said, I, I first heard that from Thomas Merton, a Christian monk, in some of his works. I said, and by the way, I, there was a pause between that little dramatic soliloquy and the next moment. And what I did, I stood there and I delivered that like an actor in a, in a yes, play. Yes, of course. And then I, quote, broke character. In other words, I stepped to the side just a little bit, still in the spotlight, and relaxed my body posture and started a dialogue with the audience. But before that, I was performing. You bet. You know. You so bet. that was just for dramatic effect. I, uh, we learned something called the power of the pause. Yeah. <laughs> I love that, right? Just that. Some, I've heard it called a pregnant pause. But well, the, the, my, my friend Kevin Buck, a philosopher, he says, without reflection, there's no true learning. And isn't that the case? If we don't take time to reflect, then, then the information on the forehead doesn't have time to find a file where it belongs in your head. And so it goes, it's like in one ear and out the other, you know, it just falls away and you don't retain that information. So without reflection, there is no true learning. And so as the speaker, you can control those reflective moments. Yeah. Well, how can we have reflection when there's constantly new information coming to us? Exactly. I've got to watch that new news story. I got the to get barrage. more information. Yeah, yeah, just the, the waves that just keep, you know, coming in. So you don't remember any one wave in you know on the beach it's because they just keep hitting you like oh that well and, and the same thing on news programs in yeah. news programs it's a barrage and if it weren't for the images most of it wouldn't stick sure sure yeah where's your favorite place to travel and talk where do you where are your the audiences that you like the best wow audiences i like the best are people that want to be there yeah sure they've got and the why is yeah real i don't clear. care who it is or or what the the situation is if I'm relevant to them and they want to be there, then I'm there and I'm willing to go until my body falls apart. What about when it doesn't work out like that? Tell us about the audience that you had to fight mm -hmm. for. Mm -hmm. There have been lots of those. That you had really? to fight for. Yeah. yeah. Well, oh. out of you know 3,000 engagements over 40 years all over the world, I've had the, the sublime and the ridiculous and, yeah. the, and the horribly painful. I had one where I was booked for a three-hour presentation. Oh, my God. And uh, oh, that's that's short. <laughs> Is it? That <laughs> yeah. seems long. In China, I was doing this past month. I was doing uh, two six-hour days to a thousand people. Were you verbal the whole time? 
You're up in front yeah. of them. Pre- yeah. Well, you, you for talk breaks. for three sentences yeah. and then they translate and then you talk for three sentences. Well, I did that or in, was it in China. It, well, I had both. In, in, in Shanghai, it was speak and pause, speak and pause, speak and pause. Right. In uh, at Taiwan, it was straight up speaking and occasional pauses to let the interpreter catch up because they all had on headsets. Right. But um, I want to hear about this three hour one. You're yeah. booked for the three hours. So I'm there to speak for three hours. They've given me a very specific assignment. This was back in the 1980s. And it was a group of um, either engineering or accounting professionals. I don't remember right now. But they didn't interact with me at all. I mean, it was like speaking to a, a brick. Mm-hmm. And I kept trying to engage the audience, and they weren't responding. And finally, I paused. And I said, you know, I prepared this presentation to be about 60% me and 40% you, and I'm doing my part. Oh, and then I just looked at them and smiled. I said, guys, if you don't loosen up a little bit, then this is going to end way too early. <laughs> and, and they didn't loosen up. So I don't know. Something was going on that I wasn't aware of. And... Um, that that right there, what you just yeah. said, is probably the most in, like like instinctive like rea- like the, the the reaction that I'm like, it wasn't you. No, it wasn't me. Yeah, you know you know what I mean. Like been. they were handing out pink slips right after the pre- presentation. Right. You know what I mean. Like there was. I've, I've had those too. Oh, yeah. Oh, the, IBM. I was speaking for them when uh, Lewis Gertner was the um, president of IBM, and he had come over from American Express, I think. Anyway, uh, this was long time ago, and the person who introduced me got up and said, folks, I know all of you are aware that there are going to be some serious organizational changes, divisions eliminated, and uh, many of us are going to be laid off. <laughs> There's not a lot we can do about that at this time. We don't know who it's going to be. Um, let me introduce our next speaker. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, it was that bad. Uh, we don't have a pitching or a catcher or first base, but yeah. enjoy the rest of the game. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that three-hour talk I was referring to a minute ago ended in two hours and uh, twenty minutes, yeah. and I just I concluded, and then I I said let's take a break, and I went back to the meeting planner, and I said hey that was the whole thing, I said I can stand up there and answer questions or you know present additional material, but I don't think it's in your best interest or the audience. Yeah. And something's going on here that uh, you need to drill down on. Mm. And they said, okay. And they were good with it. <laughs> yeah. Wow. If they're willing to, to cut something 40 minutes short yeah. that they've paid for. Yeah. Huh. I want to ask you about, um, we come into contact again with lots of different speakers. Mm-hmm. And there's um, that part where you can take questions. But I've seen... Another thing that happens, which I really like, I want to see if you have experience with it. It's I can take questions one-on-one from Mm -hmm. people, or I can do hot seats. And a hot seat is where I'm going to actually bring someone up on stage, and they get to ask questions, but it gives you a chance to do a little mini coaching for three to five minutes. Um, How effective do you think those are, and do do you do a lot of that? I don't do many hot seats. I did one in in um, in Taiwan and Shanghai, but that was 
not so much an audience member hot seat as it was a showcase of uh, one of my mentors and, and former clients I had brought along with me, and I got him up on stage and interviewed him. He's a multimillionaire, and I said, let's talk about what it takes to succeed. And so I interviewed him, and then I had the audience interview him with me. Mm. And so that way they had him on the hot seat. He was the which was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, then they wanted his autograph, which was cool. Um, but a lot of times, it, well, first off, I don't do many Q&A, but I'm always open to it. And I tell people often, early on in my presentation, I'm not going to pause and have 20 minutes devoted to questions and answers. But if you have a question that's relevant to what I'm talking about at the moment, raise your hand and let's let's answer it. And then if I want to encourage questions, I use a line that I got from an old uh, Henry Kissinger speech. <laughs> I say, okay, who's got the first question? Then I pause for about a three beat, you know, one, two, three. And if I don't get a hand, I'll say, okay, a lot of times the first question's really hard, you know, to get. So who's got the second question? <sighs> And they laugh, just like Mark did, and somebody raises their hand, you know, and if they don't, then I say, well, one of the questions I'm frequently asked is, and I pose the question. Because you're prepared for right. that moment. Sure. You have a yeah. chamber. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So it just stimulates the dialogue, and they realize, oh, it's actually okay. Yeah. You know, in, yeah. in Asian cultures. That's, I was just going to go there. Yeah. Asian cultures, it's disrespectful to interrupt the, uh, the professor, the master, the mm. the. Mm-hmm you know, doctor in front of the room. And I didn't know that ages ago, (laughs) and I was speaking in Hong Kong, and I I kept encouraging audience participation. Nothing. Mm, And I said, okay, let's take a break. And here came like 20 people wanting to ask me questions. Well, where were you when I needed you? And and they said, well, it's disrespectful. We we can't do that during a session. Oh, all right. We're going to take more frequent breaks. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I want to talk about um, the business of speaking. Yeah. We, we, um, I, I run into a lot of people who they really like speaking and yeah. they have a platform. They have an idea. They've got a book. They're going to, you know, I, I probably because I'm in the TED world. So they want to get on the TED stage. Sure. They want to do the book and they want to go out. Because it, it feels like a glamorous lifestyle. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to guess it's not. <laughs> uh, just just because of the TSA, moments, the TSA, yeah. right? Yeah. It kind of changed all oh, that for, for sure. us. Yeah. Um, what, talk to us about the business of speaking. If someone wanted to get into that and they said, I'm, I really like yeah. that. That's kind of cool. Well, I got into it in the 1970s when it was just becoming a profession. As a matter of fact, I joined a small group of 200 people in 1976, pause for effect, (laughs) 76, I joined the National Speakers Association. That was 200 people. Really? And dues was $60 a year. And what you got as a result of that was the ability to call yourself a member of the National Speakers Association. That was about it. And they held a convention each year, and you could go to that. And they had a little newsletter that was like two pages typewritten. Um, But we had gotten together as speakers who wanted a career in speaking to collaborate with each other and to share best practices on how do you get engagements and how do you grow your business and how do you promote yourself 
yeah. and be yourself. You know, how do you think of yourself as a product instead of just thinking from your own point of view? Those kind of things. And what's the difference between a speaker's bureau and, a, and an agent and a, mm. a client and mm-hmm, you know, what, mm-hmm. what the meeting planners want and expect and have a right to expect from speakers, et cetera? So we worked out all these things and we created what became a, a rather large club of speakers. And then when I became national president in 1989, 88 and 89, I said, I think it's time we became a professional society. And so I put in place a structure, an ongoing structure for our professional education and our certification process. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of other people put together a a code of ethical behavior, you know, standards we could all operate by and adhere to. Um, We hired a a full-time staff at the time that was one guy and one secretary. And by that time, we had grown to a few thousand members. Today, we own a a conference center in Tempe, Arizona. We have several million dollars in a NSA foundation where we give scholarships for uh, students and for teachers and and, uh, people involved in the field of communication. And um, we hold conventions where a couple thousand people show up and there are other organizations that have been spawned all over the world. So now there's a Global Speakers Federation Wow. And here I sit as as a past president of that group, just amazed at right. how the forest has grown from the little acorn, you know, group that we started with. Bill Clinton's wealth, when when they talk about Bill Clinton's wealth versus the time before he he was in office and the time after he's in office, they associate that wealth with speaker fees. Oh yeah, his Lord, ab- yes, his ability yeah. to travel and make speaker fees. But his, it, see, it, speaker fees for him or someone in his position is a very different world from my position or yours or Mark's. Certainly, um, because we could build a business doing that, and, and we'd have you know certain criteria we would use to determine what our fees should be. Do we have published works? Do we have some distinguishing achievement? Have we been an Olympic gold medalist or head of a corporation or a researcher or a entertainer or whatever, you know, do we have something distinctive to make us worth more than say a few hundred dollars for a presentation? And those are the things that we and and speakers bureaus around the world use to determine where this speaker's fees ought to be set. But you get someone like a Bill Clinton, a lot of times the people are not just paying him a fee. They're donating to his cause or his campaign or his wife's campaign uh, or whatever. Uh. And so they're giving, say, a half a million dollars sure. to have a meet and greet. More than, They don't care if he speaks. They just want everybody to say, I met Bill Clinton, huh. right? Yeah. And by the way, he and I are the same age, grew up in Arkansas at yeah. the same time, know a lot of the same people. And if he'd made better life choices, he could be your guest here this morning. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely put. I, I, I think what, what interests me about it is, is how you essentially created that opportunity for a president or a past president, which is to say, like, I don't, I don't think Ford was getting huge speaker fee. You know no, what I mean? Like no, you, right, it wasn't. Right, you yeah. created right, an industry, right. you helped create an industry that, yeah. that affords that kind of, that idea of, of uh, uh, what, do we, what do you even call that? Like a, a back end or whatever to, to a career where it's like, okay, yeah. you've, you've reached the highest, the highest office in the land. Now what do you do with yourself? And it's mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm going to go on a speaker series. <laughs> you know, I'm going to go do. Well, so that's, well the, so, the, so the whole thing started, pardon me, but yeah. the, the whole thing started back in the seventies when the, what you and I have, come to know as the human potential movement came in 
into play. And people became interested in self-development, and mm. adult education became not only normal, but expected. Yeah. Right, right. It, it didn't end in high school that, or no, college. Yeah, right. prior to that, it, it was school and work, and then you die. Yeah. Mm. And, um, and so the whole concept of human potential uh, took root back in the late 60s, early 70s. And throughout the 70s and 80s, it was like, for me as a, as a person involved in that field, and the field is officially known as applied behavioral science, but, or scientifically known as that. For me in that field, it was like being a surfer who took up surfing the day the waves got bigger. <laughs> and so for like right. 30 years, there was this right. huge, huge influx of, yeah. of beautiful waves to surf. Yeah. And all these expert surfers around you, you know, saying, hey, try this technique. Right place, and so right that's time. how we as the, as the members of the National Speakers Association grew it into a professional society like it is today. One of the superpowers I think you need as a speaker, there, there's several. One is being a great storyteller. Yeah. Um, but it's, um, it's memorization. It's one of the, the, just the tactical things. Mm -hmm. Do you have some memory tricks? I have had, but I don't. I don't consider myself strong at memorization. Um, but so, then again, there are contradictions to that because I could quickly and easily sing four or five hundred songs right uh, now and get almost every lyric right. Yeah. Uh, because yes, I know lots and lots and lots of lyrics, and uh, I know them within the tune, not just as prose or, or as poetry. Um, but when it comes to a speech, I don't memorize a speech. I memorize, or I don't memorize, I, uh, I clarify what I'm trying to accomplish. So I'm going to see if we can break this down into a formula. So just to help, right. help someone. So you, well, it, the main thing is, what am I trying to do? do okay. You know, do I want to get them to work together better as a team? Do I want them to embrace the company's mission and vision? and okay. be more dedicated to that? Do I want them to be more self-starting and, and uh, you know, self-motivated? Do I want them to sharpen their sales skills? Do I want them to start thinking of their customers as assets and cultivating that relationship ongoing instead of just getting a transaction sale so out of them? So that's the first thing is so what do I want to thing. get done yeah. out of this? What am I trying to, what's the effect after yeah. I leave the room at yeah. the end of this yeah. that should be lingering? Yeah. Okay, and then how can I facilitate that? And then I identify the body of material that needs to be conveyed or okay. covered in order okay. to do it. And then I break that into memorable pieces. And then you I look for it. yeah, I look for ways to to um, make it easy for them to remember, either with images, with stories, with, with uh, one liners, like uh, in business as in medicine prescription before diagnosis is malpractice. <laughs> you know, those kind of right, things. Right, yeah. right, right, right. That's not mine, but so, it's been around for years. So uh -huh. that was all interesting, specifically, though, the third one, which was make it easy for them to remember, right. makes it easy for you to remember. That's true. Yeah. And it, once I have all that clarified in my mind and heart, and I say and heart because it, sure. if I don't care about it, they'll know. Yeah. And it, by the way, if I don't care about them, they'll know if mm. I don't respect them. So we can come back to that. But once it's clear in my mind, it's just you and me helping you get better. It's like uh, Dr. Blaine Lee said to me years ago after a speech in San Diego. He said, 
I really enjoyed your speech, and I know several ways you could get better. So come with me, and let's discover how much better you could be. Mm-hmm. And I paid him a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a pretty good line. Well, you do that when you yeah. find when you find those those people. Who was? Um, give us a couple of your mentors. Earl Nightingale. Yep. We and you talked about Earl. Earl. Can we Google Earl and? Sure. Okay. Yep. We'll Earl do that. Nightingale. So we'll, and 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 uh, Zig Ziglar. Of course. What was your favorite Zig Ziglar line? You can get everything you want in life if you just help enough other people get what they want. There you go. Yep. I love that. Yep, yep, And yep. at the end of every speech, he would say, if you do these things, if you learn these skills, I will see you at the top. Oh. See you at the top is his slogan. Like mine is helping people grow, which is compatible with my concept of the acorn principle. I would like to, um, I want to talk about your latest book. Me which, too. <laughs> uh, wow. And oh, a little enthusiasm. I, I love that. Um, and you, thank you very much. You sent me a copy of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love how easy it is now to just drag the PDF onto the Kindle icon. Yeah. And now it's everywhere Bing. I need it to be. Kaboom. That's right. I just have that. So and all your, uh, all I love your I love instruments. how I love how your grandson is gonna think that's the oldest piece of technology he's ever <laughs> heard. That's of. The truth. Yeah. His <laughs> his books will come along behind him and say, <laughs> yeah. What chapter would you like to hear while you're riding your skateboard today? You yeah. had a hoverboard. A, a PD what? A PDF? I don't yeah. understand, Grandpa. My ten year old um, got a Chromebook for his birthday there in you June. Go. Yeah. And has an email because he had to have email to register sure. it. And I said we are you and I are going to have some fantastic conversations now, and it's going to be great. So the title is? The Self-Motivation Handbook. Do what needs to be done even when you don't feel like doing it. Mm. And in the table of contents, it says there's 268 one-minute lessons in self-motivation. And I'm guessing these are all things that you've learned over your 40 years and 3,000 speeches yep. to, to help motivate you. And it's, you know, getting things done and all. We talk a lot about that on the show. Like all of those are really important. And on top of those 268, there are 68 other items right in the front of the book that are just 68 different ways to motivate yourself. And for the person, so let's help them remember this. Sure. So let's give them, give them just one. Make it easy. Number one is make it easy to do what you've decided to do. Huh. For example, if it, today's Friday, and um, on Friday mornings I typically do a six-mile mountain trail run, hiking and, and trail running with, with a group of friends, every Sunday, every Wednesday, every Friday. And what I'll do on Thursday night is I'll get my hiking clothes and put them right at the foot of my bed so that they're the first thing I see when I get up in the morning. And I'll set my alarm for 6 a.m. And I set it early in the evening to make sure that it's set instead of waiting until I go to bed to set it. And um, I just make sure that it's in my calendar and I've, I've cleared my morning so that that's available for me to do. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to hike, but it means I've removed a lot of the little obstacles that might cause me to hesitate. Mm. The, the part that got me on that was you said the group. That's right. There's that, that there's going to be somebody at 6.07, somebody's going to be texting you saying, hey, not here. Yeah, where, where are, are you? you? That's right. Yeah. yeah, It's a group called the Heartbreak Hiking 
fools. <laughs> and there are 60, six zero what? of us. Wow. 60. No kidding. Yeah. And on any, any day, we'll have anywhere from 20 to 40 people show up. That's officially a herd. Yeah. That's a is. herd moving, <laughs> moving and, across the land. And our, we call ourselves the Heartbreak Hiking Fools for a purpose because that's, that's the mentality we want to cultivate. We are ridiculously dedicated to it. We, I wrote a song for our group. Uh, the line from it that I want to reference is we're hiking for fitness and friendship. We are the heartbreak hiking fools and fitness and friendship in that order. Mm. So the reason we're there is fitness. That means this is not a stroll in the country. We're not going to stop and smell the roses. If you smell a rose, you're out of the group, right? (laughs) You can smell the roses on your way back, but not on the way out because the timer watch has been set and you're going to see whether you got a personal best today to the top of the mountain. Mm. And when you get there, you, <laughs> sure. and you're covered with perspiration, you know, and you recover for a minute or two. We take a group photograph, and then everybody strolls back together except me. I'll talk with the others at the top, but when it's time to go back to the car, which is going to be three miles back, just like it was three miles up, I run back. So I've, I've mm. designated myself the official heartbreak running back. Because I'm always running back to the car. And and I've done that. I'm 69 years old. In September, I'll be 70. And uh, I've been doing that for more than 12 years. Hmm. And I'm just having a blast. You know, loving it. I, three days a week, six miles a time. Each one a very vigorous workout. And um, you on a lot of medications? Uh, no, but you take, but but, yeah. but you have to take like a lot. You got a lot of medications though, right? Like, don't you? That's true. Water, water, okay. Protein, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I and the, seriously, yeah. uh, I don't take medications. I mean, I, I I'll I'll take maybe um, an Advil once or twice That's, a year. Yeah, I, I once or twice a year. I talked to mm. two. I talked mm. to two eighty-year-olds mm. mm. once. Uh, like on the same day, one of them was a smoker for for sixty five years. The other one was a doctor runner, and the doctor runner took half uh, an aspirin every couple days, maybe. And uh, the smoker was on a, a table full of, of oh yeah, you know, yeah. Had, you know, prednisone and all all sorts of steroids to support their lungs. And, and, and I used to, used to have that because I used to be fat and out of oh. shape, and and I was a smoker for thirteen years. There it is. And then I decided this was back in the nineteen sixties and seventies, and I decided in nineteen seventy. Six, I'm out of the fat business. I'm no longer going to be overweight, out of shape, and smoking cigarettes. I'm done. Yeah. In 74, I quit smoking, and in, in uh, 76, I weighed 200 pounds. Uh. Today, I weigh 150. Uh. And I got a 30-inch waist and feel fit and great and don't take medications. Live and I'm, yeah, yeah, I hope so. You yeah. have grandkids? I have two grandkids. One's 15, one's 13, and they are miracles. <laughs> so there's a decent chance you're going to be a great grandpa yeah that's pretty right? cool that's pretty cool dad lived to 80 as a smoker and uh uh southern eater meaning uh yeah. if it wasn't you know fat and uh white flour and sugar and salt then probably wasn't going to get eaten uh if it ain't fried it ain't food right mm-hmm. and uh, mom lived to 90 and she had smoked until she was about 70 years old mm. And it's amazing. I mean, they made it that far with with those habits. So imagine would, what you can do. Yeah, yeah, I could. I could probably go a day longer than them. Well, the first hundred and fifty year old has already been born, right? That's what they're statistically saying. Is that wow. the first person to live to be one hundred and fifty wow. is probably on the planet right now? So maybe it's you guys. Who knows? 
I, I'm up for that. I, uh, <laughs> my, my goal when I was 12 was to become a young grandfather so mm -hmm. I could enjoy the kids through their, and we had our first man camp a few weeks ago and uh, uh, their dad trusted uh, me enough to leave the kids with us for the weekend and it was, it was like, I wanna do this all the time. Ah. Uh, Good for it's, you. it's fantastic. And my, my next goal is uh, I'm writing a book um, of like my life so far, mm -hmm. but I'm only making three copies of it. <laughs> One for each of the kids. Yeah. And that I want to give them on their wedding day. Oh, what so a my, nice that's gift. my goal yeah, that's yeah. is to yeah. get to there. So being fit and wellness and mentally stable and yeah. all of the kinds of things you need to do to, to live out another 20 that. years. Jim, we're, speaking of time, we're out of it. Ah. Just like that. Bring it back. Yeah. How do people get this? I, I want them to get this book. How do they get the self They go to cathcart.com or Amazon for that matter. It's called The Self-Motivation Handbook. And uh, it comes out officially August 24th, 2016. So they can pre-order it. So they can pre-order it right now, and it'll arrive as if it were already available almost. Right. And um, uh, cathcart.com, I have probably 730 pages of resources, all free, that they can explore, videos to watch, articles to read, things like that. And then you've got a newsletter that comes out. You're always giving us Yep. Good tips and tricks and just all good stuff. Yeah, and they can sign up for it easily right there on the on cathcart.com. Plus, my uh, TEDx talk is on the front page, so they click on that and they watch, watch that it. for free. Yep, eight minutes long. How to Great. believe in yourself. I love that. Thank Jim, you. thank you so much. What, my what, pleasure. Uh, what should we call this episode? I want to give it a, what's a snappy title for it? I mean, you've done so much, and you're good at writing, so <laughs> you have an unfair advantage on, on giving a title to the show. <laughs> the Self-Motivation Handbook. Okay. Yeah. How about that? Why not? Cross-branding. Very smart. Line everything up. There you go. Yeah. And they'll like the cover because it looks like a Wheaties box. Yeah. The organizing story for the book is just put on your running shoes. Mm. Just, just get started. That's right. right. Just, just That's start. Right. Just get. Just, just show go, up. Do don't it. have to buy equipment. Don't have to join That's a right. gym. Just leave your house. Yep. Get to the curb. <laughs> get, to get, the curb. get to the curb. Step There's one, our get hashtag. To the curb. Yep. Get to the curb. <laughs> Jim, thank you so much, and thank and you. appreciate all the stuff that you're doing down at Calu uh, and and all the lives that you're impacting there and thank around you. the world. Thank you very much for that. I also want to thank California Lutheran University, speaking of them, their School of Management and Tolman and Weicker Insurance Services, and our podcasting partner, Pull String Press, for this great studio. The 805 Connect project, now in our third year, is supported by partners and sponsors throughout the region. I want to thank them as well. More information on the project at 805connect.com. And Patrick, how could our listener who's who's probably come to this because they heard about us through Jim's newsletter? Yeah, well, you know, go back through the archive, check in on, on lots of other shows, almost 100 shows now on the 805 Conversations. And uh, a lot of them are the kind of show I was very lucky to sit on this other side of the table and I got to listen to them first person. Um, but there are several of them that I've gone back and recommended to friends. So, uh, you know, find a couple of them in the archive. Uh, mm. Subscribe. That's the, the other good thing for all those future uh, versions of this that are going to come out. Um, because right now you're about 45 minutes in. You're about halfway through your workout in the morning. Uh, now it's a good time to turn uh, to whoever's next to you and tell them to subscribe to this show. Ooh. And then uh, you guys can be uh, partners both in running and also in listening to this show. I love that. Um, I would love to hear from you personally. We get lots of letters from folks and uh, with ideas for people to talk to. 
uh, and uh, suggestions for the show. I love reading those. They're, they are quite a treat. You can reach me at mark at 805connect.com and let me know what you like about the show. So until next time, this is Mark Sylvester, your host for 805 Conversations.